welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is part two of the Youth and Resistance Training Series written by Dr. Derek Miles, physical therapist out of Stanford University. If you haven't checked out part one yet, I've linked that in the description below. And for the text version of this article, you can head over to the barbellmedicine.com website or click the link in the description below. We'll also get some commentary from Dr. Derek Miles on this article series, so stay tuned for that exclusive content at the end of this narration. Part two, the long-term athletic developmental model. All models are wrong, some are useful. If early sports specialization is not advantageous in most scenarios and with an epidemic of inactivity among our youth, we need to find a more effective means of promoting habits for lifelong physical activity. Enter the long-term athletic developmental model, popularized by a paper by Ford et al. in 2011. This framework was originally developed by Istian Bali and serves as an evidence-based model to advocate for the best interests of youth athletes. It is not without its critics, however, and justifiably so. The overall idea is to emphasize training and technique over competition during youth development, which we do support. The long-term athletic developmental model separates goal-specific development into four stages based on chronological age and developmental maturity. The four stages include 1. Early childhood, 2. Late childhood, 3. Adolescence, and 4. Adulthood. While the model needs to be viewed as a spectrum based on the needs of the individual child, it does offer useful landmarks and advocacy for focus on training. Early childhood, males aged 6 to 8, and females aged 6 to 9. Competency of technique in this group is low, and neurological adaptations predominate as athletes develop skills over strength. At this stage, development should be focused on the fundamentals. Structured sport is not warranted at this stage, and training should be game-oriented as a means of developing competency with a wide variety of movement patterns. Work should focus on developing coordination, balance, and agility. The authors also advocate for developing muscular endurance, although this can arguably be accomplished through prolonged free play as well. There is some evidence that prepubertal children have metabolic profiles similar to that of well-trained adult endurance athletes. This supports the axiom that young children are hard to wear out and would make a case for their ability to tolerate an increased volume of play. Play can be goal-directed, such as scoring points or accomplishing a task, ergo number of times juggling a soccer ball, but should not be directed towards accumulating wins over losses. Late Childhood males aged 10 to 13, or females aged 9 to 11. This stage is referred to as learning to train, and this cannot be emphasized enough. Even at this stage, there is still no advocacy for sports-specific training. Unfortunately, the reality is often that this age is where sports specialization begins to occur. It would be considered ludicrous to have a student specialize in mathematics at this point in their life at the expense of reading and science, and the same can be said for specializing in one sport. Children are not usually taught how to train, but rather told what to do. This shifts the focus from development to competition, completely skipping the emphasis of this phase. This learning to train phase contains the same balance and muscular endurance training advocacy as the fundamental stage, but now plyometric and free weight training have entered the plan. Note that this is not an advocacy for maximum effort resistance training, but rather a focus on developing technical proficiency. As with the fundamentals phase, the more technical movement patterns a young athlete is exposed to and masters, the easier it is for an athlete to subsequently express those traits in future competition. It should be clear that the primary focus of the first two phases are on a high variety of training. Adolescence. Males 14 to 18 years old and females aged 12 to 18. This stage is described as the training to train phase. This is also the first place where sports-specific training is mentioned, although it should still be performed in conjunction with other training paradigms. The category has two additional components, heavy slow resistance and eccentric training. According to the long-term athletic developmental model, the window of optimal trainability, that time when a large portion of athletic development transpires, is from age 11 to 16. 
Yet in the best case scenarios, athletes typically are not introduced to resistance training until at least their freshman year of high school, if at all. This represents three years of missed exposure to interventions that can both increase performance and decrease the risk of injury. The current best evidence for resistance training recommendations in the youth population come from Lasinki et al., which will be discussed later in the prescriptive portion of this text. For the purposes of this section, it is worth noting that females tend to have a larger relative response to training in terms of gaining strength than males. Females have 1.6 times greater incidence of ACL tears than males, and multiple studies have found decreased strength to be a risk factor for such injuries. O'Kane et al. demonstrated in a cohort of female soccer players aged 12 to 15 that a one standard deviation increase in hamstring strength was associated with a 35% reduction in injury risk, while a one standard deviation increase in quadriceps strength reduced risk of injury by 30%. If females derive more benefit from strength training in this age range compared to males, we must question why it is not regularly implemented as a part of youth training programs. This is not to discount the protective effects of strength training on males, however, as Zotifa et al. found that strength training reduced the risk of injuries threefold over the course of one soccer season as well. In addition, the cohort that participated in strength training also demonstrated improvements in speed, cutting, and jumping tasks. Regarding eccentric training, the point must be made that most resistance training includes an eccentric component. Eccentric training provides a protective effect against muscle strains as seen in studies by Peterson, Good, and Alatar specific to the Nordic hamstring curl. Voigt and Hoppler explored the mechanisms by which this might occur, dichotomizing the function of eccentric contractions into either a shock absorber or elastic spring. They go on to advocate for the utility of eccentrics in increasing muscle strength and power and optimizing the length-tension relationship. With the protective effect and performance enhancement effects of this training modality, it should likely be an integral part of any training program for athletes in the training-to-train phase. Adulthood, males 18 and over or females 18 and over. The final stage of the long-term athletic developmental model is the training-to-compete phase. As this text is primarily focused on the development of youth athletic potential, not much time will be devoted to the exploration of this stage. Ideally, the movement competency in this cohort should be high, but this should still be seen as a framework in which to continue developing new skills. The same core components of heavy resistance, eccentrics, balance, and plyometric training hold, but at this point, an athlete is cleared to specialize in their sport. Whereas in the learning to train and training to train phases focus on skills development, this focus now shifts to allow the athlete to express their skills in the desired sport. If that sport is not strength focused, i.e. sports other than weightlifting and powerlifting, resistance training takes a secondary role, though it should not go away entirely. Given the established effects of resistance training on improving performance and reducing injury risk, it should remain an integral part of training no matter the athlete's ultimate sport of choice. In conjunction with the ACSM recommendations for resistance training twice per week, a review by Sialek demonstrated multiple advantages for the implementation of lifelong strength training. It attenuates loss of strength and muscle mass, it improves and reduces the loss of bone mineral density, it improves weight control and cardiovascular health, and reduces the risk of falls later in life. While the long-term athletic developmental model represents an ideal of capturing individuals at young ages, the heuristic can be applied across the lifespan. In other words, all training should start with the fundamentals phase, no matter when it begins, even among adults undertaking their first physical pursuits. An activity that is enjoyed is more likely to be continued, and then the parameters for training for the activity can be learned. Once some mastery has been achieved, training can be directed towards maximizing variables related to the sport so that when the training to compete phase is reached, the athlete has a broad function of skills to express in their chosen sport. As seen in new sports, early specialization tends to forego developing the breadth of skills necessary to become a general athlete first, before becoming a specific type of athlete. In the context of resistance training, this can be seen as the transition from a beginner to advanced lifters. There is no definitive timeline within which this occurs and will be unique to every individual. 
It is also okay for an athlete to remain in the training-to-train phase, as this effectively keeps their training viewed as a process instead of becoming hyper-focused on the specific end goal of becoming advanced. With all that said, for every great plan or model, there is always a but, and the long-term athletic development model is no different. Many athletes have violated this rule and went on to achieve high levels of success. We are not arguing that the long-term athletic development model is the absolute way to approach training. For example, there is decent evidence that in order to become a high-level gymnast, specialization needs to occur at a younger age. However, the question could be posed as to how many second-tier gymnasts could have become elite-level sprinters, soccer players, or even weightlifters if they were exposed to different sports earlier. I'm Derek Miles. I am a physical therapist at Stanford Children's Hospital. I am part of the pain and rehab team at Barbell Medicine. Perfect. Yeah, this is part two of the youth and resistance training sort of series. Now, last time we kind of talked about, we did this broad scoping overview of, you know, what are the general guidelines, early sports specialization, and kind of the downsides to doing that. This time we're going to get into the nuts and bolts a little bit of the long-term athletic developmental model uh, for athletes and specifically like when people should start resistance training. So let's just hop in. Like the million dollar question here is, is resistance training dangerous for young or youth athletes? No, not by any means whatsoever. It should be a fundamental part of any program if starting from a very young age. But what about, you know, growth you know, harms to the growth plates, damage to the epiphyseal plates or, or stunting a, an athlete's growth. Isn't that uh, something we worry about here? Well, it turns out that's certainly a wives tale. The American Academy of Pediatrics has actually come out with a position statement saying that resistance training is perfectly state or safe and should be an integral part of any training paradigm. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, just a little more uh, background there, you know, the idea was that Problem one, you thought uh, it was thought that you know resistance training would act physically like fracture the epiphyseal plates, the growth plates, just due to the load, right? So you load up the kid who's got these gummy <laughs> epiphyseal plates because they're not yet solidified, and you load them with weight, and it would just fracture them, and then they would stunt their growth. Uh, turns out that doesn't happen. And when you look at actual injury rates in youth populations, uh, 75% of all the injuries that actually occur are from them dropping a weight on their foot. This is from a study looking at a couple thousand uh, kids that presented to the emergency room after a uh, resistance training injury. That's how it was coded. It was because they dropped a weight on their foot. Now, this fortunately, this, this incidence of dropping a weight on a foot declines as people get older which is, I guess, a good sign. But um, yeah, the actual fracture of epiphyseal plate doesn't, doesn't occur in resistance training. And the second thought was that, yeah, well, resistance training can increase testosterone levels or potentially that people who are engaging in resistance training early on might start use of anabolic steroids early on. <laughs> and so <laughs> the higher testosterone levels will, uh, will close up the growth plates. But uh, the actual closure of the epiphyseal plates is secondary to estrogen. And again, number of studies and position statements sub, uh, subsequent to those studies have shown repeatedly that this does not occur, meaning that it you don't stunt a, a, a young person's growth by resistance training and you're not at this huge increase of injury. Um, would, how, here's the, the second million dollar question. How young is too young, Derek? Well, it depends on how we're going to define resistance training because really in the beginning stages, it's about technical proficiency. And I think you've seen a movement to where some of the weightlifting communities 
don't necessarily judge you on absolute weight moved in the younger populations, but on the technique with which the lift is performed. And I think this is a good way of going about it because if you start developing those motor patterns by the time that we can actually start safely loading, then we can, like we've already developed the technique in order to do so in the most ideal manner. Um, if you really get down to the when of it, it should be around middle school age. And by the time we're in like adolescence, we can start running a little bit more heavy resistance training. By then we're starting to go through some of the puberty changes and we can start really reaping the benefits of like the muscular tendinous um, and bone adaptation to resistance training. Yeah. Yeah. The way I like to think about this is that um, like if you wanted to have a four-year-old or five-year-old play around with learning some of the lifts, you know, and you had a dowel or a training bar or other light implement to allow them to like, learn technique because they wanted to because they thought that was going to be fun and they displayed some level of maturity and ability attentive focus to actually do participate in that that's fine uh, yeah but you know as far as actually like a formalized training program designed to elicit strength improvements and you know prepare someone for sport whatever that sport is it's probably not going to take place until um, the later stages of tanner stage two um, really, you know, Tanner stage three. And again, this is going to be middle school age to, to, you know, uh, early high school. And basically at that point, somebody has the requisite internal milieu, hormonal milieu to respond to the level of training, uh, or to training in a, in an adaptive way. Uh, the other thing is, you know, young kids, it's funny because you mentioned this in the article, like very young kids, particularly early Tanner stage two. Uh, so you're thinking like 10 and, 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 you know, seven to 10 years old or something like that. And then Tanner stage one, the really, really young kids cannot produce lactate in a way like their creatine phosphate systems are really like almost rudimentally developed in the level of the musculoskeletal tissue. You can't wear them out. They just, one of the reasons is why you can't, because you can't really create um, lactate and hydrogen ions as in, in significant quantities, and uh, so they're lacking that anaerobic sort of arm in a way. So that's going to, you know, be developed, and at, at the point at which you can actually do that, you can actually engage in like goal-directed uh, resistance training because it is an anaerobic process. So anyway, just to, so. You you would not advise like a firm cutoff for like a bottom end age for like just exposure to the lifts, but you'd no, probably recommend to the early stages of puberty for like actual formalized yeah. resistance training. Yeah, and if you really look at it early on in like the six to eight range, it, it's the actual category is called the fundamentals, and I like how the author authors capitalize the fun and fundamentals as a point of emphasis. Um, just because it really should be about learning the basics of everything. And once again, we've seen this movement towards specialization and competition at younger and younger ages. And I certainly do not think elementary school kids need to be competing in a resistance training sport with the emphasis being on the total volume of weight used. If you're doing it on technical proficiency, I can certainly get down with that. Um, but really, the sooner you can start working on some of this coordination and agility, I mean, think about how often even us today still have components in our training program that are technique-based and making us proficient in our squat or our deadlift. And if the sooner we can start that component of it, 
the sooner we start to get closer to mastering the movement and are able to perform it at a higher level when we can start putting some load through it. And so, so let's say somebody's, you know, they're entering their, their adolescence, right? They're going through puberty. They want to start training or their parents were like, Hey, you should probably do this. Uh, what are some benefits to getting youth involved in training early on? This is going to be right you know, before high school. So what, what sort of benefits are people looking at there? Well, if you, the easiest one, if your kid is going to be an athlete is that there are, or it is good level evidence saying that incorporating resistance training programs reduces the risk of injury significantly. So if you want your kid to be healthy out on the field, you should probably have them in the weight room during some of their downtime. Um, you also look at it in terms of performance. There's plenty of studies showing a correlate or a relationship between your squat and your vertical jump. And, you know, if you sport like basketball or volleyball, hey, if, if my athletic potential is predicated upon how high I can jump, I probably want to do things to maximize that very. So there's just benefits all around. If you even look at it from a physiological standpoint, there's a lot of specific adaptation that tends to occur, especially with some of the heavier loading that helps out with tendon development. And, you know, one of the big diagnosis we tend to see is like jumper's knee, patellofemoral pain syndrome, whatever anterior knee pain diagnosis we want to give it. And the things that really have been shown to assist with that is quadriceps and hip strengthening. So the question would be if all of these things really do seem to have a treatment effect on the back end, why aren't we preemptively putting that into children's programming? Yeah. I I had uh I had this idea that, you know, Football is probably the, the one of the most widely played sports in the United States, particularly when you look at like Pop Warner League and then like the next level up and, you know, right before high school, there are all these formalized leagues and organizations and ways for people to get involved and participate, right? Uh, but there's no formalized, you know, resistance training program. And mm-hmm. I think there should be not only to reduce risk, but also again, to kind of broaden that, the, the sort of base of, of uh, physical skill development in these, uh, these youth athletes. Um, the other thing, and I, and I, you actually speak about this in the, in the article series, just, you know, there's this huge uh, lack of, you know, physical activity in the youth. Uh, the accelerometer data suggesting that 16 year olds are about as active as 60 year olds because they just don't do anything. <laughs> and, and so getting people involved in the strength conditioning program is going to, you know, build that habit early on um, and ideally get people moving more. So you have a whole bunch of uh, downstream effects, you know, as far as preventing obesity or rapid weight gain, which is associated with adulthood obesity and disease states and stuff like that. So there's this huge potential benefit from a societal standpoint for getting people involved early on. Um if you had to design a program, I know we're going to get to that in the next mm-hmm. the next part. But uh, how rigid would you actually make the program? In, in other yeah. words, how rigid would you be with the actual exercise selection, and how rigid would you be with the actual load selection for somebody in the, in their adolescence? Well, I, I think this gets at part of the difficulty that you have in being prescriptive with this age, because it really shouldn't be that rigid, and it's going to be contingent upon the athlete. If I take a swimmer who is practicing five to six days a week for 10 hours a week total time, I probably don't have the reserve in that athlete to talk about a three day a week training program. And at that point, I should be happy with just like 
one day a week with the basics programmed in. And it's more important that we're getting the work in than the true like specificity of work. Whereas if we take a soccer player who happens to have six weeks off during the off season, well, that's a time where we really probably could put something structured together and really try and make some gains. And I think one of the things that gets lost a lot in these conversations is if we look at year-round sports participation, athletes get better in the off-season. It's not that you typically see most athletes really, you know, they start the season off and all of a sudden someone comes out of the blue in the last two-thirds of the season. It's, you know, the first week of the season, we have a pretty good idea of who's going to be the higher-level people around. But if we don't ever give these youth athletes any off-season whatsoever, how do we really expect them to have that development to, to make those big gains. Um, but during those times is really when the structure of the programming should likely get a little bit more specific. There are some things that I think if you are a high speed athlete, Nordic hamstring curl should be part of your program. Um, any athlete likely needs a squat and a deadlift variant in there. It's just the most bang for your buck as far as scalable or scalable resistance. I really think that, especially in the youth athletic population, there does need to be some single leg exercises just because a lot of sports is predicated on being on one leg. And there isn't a magic exercise. And I think that's part of the problem is people look for this one weird trick and the real skill is being able to figure out the trick that works for the individual athlete. Yep. That makes sense to me. Uh, as a final kind of just return to the, you know, one of the underlying themes of this article series uh, on early sports specialization uh, in the advice and the repeated sort of uh, pointing out that people who specialize early, both in sports and then in their resistance training, <laughs> tend to tend to do a, a little bit worse. One of the examples you actually brought up was uh, gymnasts. And, you you know, there's evidence to suggest that gymnasts who um, specialize early tend to do better in sport, meaning they get to either graduate to the next level or participate at higher levels overall. Uh, one thing I wanted to pick your brain about um, was whether the sport actually sets itself up that way to to get basically as a selection bias and a survivorship bias combination for uh, athletes who specialize, ha they have to specialize that early. So, so for example, the Olympic rules right now suggest that gymnasts have to be 16 years old in order to participate. All right. And, uh, the average age of the women's, uh, the U S, uh, gymnast gymnastics team, uh, is just under 19 years old. Um, and then at the last Olympics, the 2000, uh, uh, 16 Olympics, the Chinese team had a number of girls who were listed at age 16 on their roster. Although there was, uh, some, uh, I guess talks amongst the coaches and the uh, some of the Olympic direct uh, rules directors that they were actually fourteen or fifteen, suggesting that because this sport requires you to be small and have all this flexibility, that may you know regardless of what you do, leave you with with age, you have to specialize early in that sport. Um, and so, what do you think would happen if we raise the age, the minimum age participation to twenty one in that sport? Oh. Man, that's a question I've never thought about. Um, so whenever we speak about 
use specialization, it's always, these are the suggestions except for gymnastics. And gymnastics does seem to really fly in the face out of it. I don't know that I necessarily, I, I do think it may drop the quality of performance, but I think it gets down to a little bit more of a nuanced discussion about like what constitutes a sport. Because if you look at gymnastics, it is predicated on being able to do the same task over and over and over again at a constantly higher level. And I do think if you're looking about it from a motor learning pattern, like you do have to have a ton of reps in order to really get that dialed in. But then it becomes a conversation about like how much capacity can the body take? And I do think you are correct in saying it's gymnast your gymnastics as a sport probably does have a, high rate of survivorship bias to where it's like, did you happen to be the lucky one who didn't get injured along the way? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, it's, it, it's just, it, it's interesting because like you, gymnastics isn't usually a, it's a non-contact sport. <laughs> well, not necessarily because you're contacting the ground from very yeah. high up in the air. <laughs> so, right. Right. Yeah. But you usually don't have another athlete like hitting you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so when you compare the actual injury rate, that occurs in gymnast elite level gymnastics to other non-contact sports like skiing or resist like Olympic weightlifting or whatever. It's much higher. It's mm -hmm. much higher. We're talking like anywhere between four to seven injuries per thousand participation hours where these other non-contact sports are usually in that sort of two to three range, um, you know, significantly lower. And so I, I my thought is that, you know, one of the contributing factors is that they have to specialize early on because of the sort of, the way the sport is set up right now, meaning that the age to participate is so young that you have to specialize earlier on. You don't, be, you can't develop this broad base of physical skills um, because otherwise you've aged out almost of the of the sport. So, sorry. Yeah. Well, you're an important guy. You're an important yes. guy. But that's a that's more just of a pontification. I don't I don't know if there's a lot of. It's just an interesting it's an interesting thought to uh, about you know why that exception exists in gymnastics. Well, it'd be interesting to see because I think you do have a valid point out of that. However, I think the human psyche would say that the more we can build in early on, that just means our athletes would still be better later. It's just when do you let them start competing, which I, I can get down with that side of the argument. But I don't think if we move the age up to 21, all of a sudden we would see athletes going from 20 hours a week of participation down to 12 just because they couldn't go quite as soon. Right. Yeah. You might get less of the survivorship bias and you still get the high rate of participation. Yeah. And then, yeah. So maybe it's a wash, but yeah, we'll have to stay tuned for more data. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think gymnastics is just a fascinating one to really do research on as well, because you do start talking about like some of the physiological underpinnings of what does cause some of these adaptive responses, either advantageous or disadvantageous. Cause you know, if we look at like Osgood Slaughter's disease, which is awful to be called a disease, but essentially like an apophysitis of your tibial tubercle, you see the same thing in gymnastics. It's just that they're electronic. And it's just they're walking on their hands and landing on their hands repetitively. So we do see that there is some translation, not necessarily into like the biomechanics of it, but just the mechanism with which the load is applied to the body. Is there an an eponym for the electron apophysitis? Um, not that I'm aware of. Oh, okay, because like Osgood Schlatter is uh, 
Yeah, it's usually so for people who don't know, this is a, a knee injury. You usually get this um, at your tibial tubercle. So right below the knee, there's this big bony prominence. Um, there's a big genetic component to it. Uh, in any event, yeah. So what Derek is saying is that that actually happens in the upper limbs for gymnasts. Um, it's just we don't have a fun name for it. Yeah, no, no one swept in and named it after themselves quite yet. We call it the Miles Feigenbaum syndrome. Yeah, it's. Well, I mean, even if you look at it from the, the naming side of it, the, the, it does seem that we always have this uh, desire for an eponym, like Sidney Larson Johansson versus Osgood Slaughters versus patellofemoral pain syndrome. And essentially, like, it, the differential is where does it hurt when I poke for the most part? Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, it's the last interesting thing, and then we'll, <laughs> we're really out in the weeds here. It's just because yeah. Osgood Slaughter, I just I happen to know this from my anatomy training back in the day. So, like, Osgood uh, and Slaughter were both the uh, ortho surgeons. And so, like, turn of the century, 1900s, they basically described this the first time in the literature. What's most interesting is that two other people have, like, described the same thing. They just didn't name it, and they didn't uh, describe it as well. So one was uh, actual... James Paget. He described this in the 1890s, so like almost a decade before. And then uh, Lanolong. Uh, there's actually people in Europe tend to may, might call this the Lanolong's disease instead of Osgood Schlatter's. Anyway, that's well, it's, absolutely it's meaningless. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's actually an interesting like sidebar to the conversation because the long-term athletic development model, which is what we base some of the recommendations off of, I've always attributed to Ford. And then as I was writing the piece, I realized that it wasn't actually Ford who originally came up with it. It was um, a gentleman by the name of Bali. And it, there's actually something called Stickler's Law of Eponymy, where it's everything that you know is named after someone that's actually the second person who named it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, which is funny because even Stickler's Law was originally by someone else. It's just Stigler named it after himself, fully aware that the first person didn't take the time to name it after himself. So there you go, guys. This is what you tune into the Barbell Medicine Podcast for. You get a bunch of extraneous information that you get to impress people with later on. It's good for trivia. Uh, so <laughs> Derek, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for writing this. And uh, we'll be back with part three in the near future. Thank you. This has been an article written by Dr. Derek Miles. For the full text version, you can click the link in the description below or head over to the barbellmedicine.com website. If you haven't checked out part one yet, it's also linked in the description below along with the text version on our website. Thank you guys for listening to the Barbell Medicine podcast where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're over on iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and review. Share this with your friends. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast and we really appreciate it. See you guys next time.